Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to this very special Word in Your Ear. Um, this one represents a few firsts, actually. It's taken us a while to set this, set this up, to bring this, uh, bring this together. It's the first time we've been joined by a knight of the realm. It's the first time we've been joined by a guest who is arguably taller than Mark Ellen. <laughs> no argument about it at all. And it's certainly the first time we've been joined by a guest who is probably luxuriating in, in the memory of a review that appeared in the New York Times, no less, only a few days ago, that hailed a revival of a piece of work he was involved in writing, I don't know how many years ago. 48 years. 48, 48 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Was hailed as, and this really doesn't happen often in the New York Times, a conceptual and artistic triumph. You read that again every morning, don't you? Tim Rice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been a gratifying uh, moment. Well, yes, except nobody reads the New York Times these days because uh, papers have had it, particularly in New York. But every single time Superstar appeared in New York, it got really terrible reviews. <laughs> um, and the trouble with bad reviews is you tend to agree with them. You think, oh, my God, we've been rumbled. Um, and if you get a good review, you think, we fooled them. Um, so, but it was quite nice. I mean, it was a very good production. It was a revival of the piece, um, and it was done live on television in America. And it starred John Legend, um, whom I had heard, and um, Sarah Bareilles, who is wonderful. But the real reason I went over to see it was Alice Cooper. Oh, you know. Alice Cooper is Herod, isn't he? Is he? Herod? He was Herod. He yeah, was terrific, right. you yeah. know. And uh, um, all these all these young up and coming pop stars I'd hardly heard of, and Alice was Herod. Was and and they staged this in a in a special venue in in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, they, they it was a, called the Armory, something Armory, and it was a big space. And I have to say, they did it very well. The best thing about it was that 
It had nine intervals. This is this is something yeah. this is something that should happen in in in, in, in every show because it was simultaneously going on was a test match in New Zealand, and in every interval I was able to get an update on the score. Had there only been one interval, I would have been an hour behind. Um, so that that was that was. Why good. did it have nine intervals? Because of the ads. It was going oh, out live on television in um, uh, the you know. New York, in fact, over all of America, yeah. and they—I thought it would kill the piece, but it didn't. It somehow still worked, and they had guys running around with cameras in the middle of the crowd. But because some of the people in the crowd were hysterical—I mean, you know, acting hysterical—and they were reporters and and people chasing after Jesus and the disciples and everything—it kind of all worked. It worked really well. And, and John Legend, whose work I, I knew a bit about, but he was not my generation. I didn't really know his work that well, but he was brilliant. And Alice was just fantastic. I've known Alice for yonks. He's my, How many times have you he's seen... He's my credibility factor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With a show like Jesus Christ Superstar, how many times do you think you've seen it? Well, I don't know, not as many as you might think. I mean, you, you occasionally get letters from fans who I shouldn't say this, but I tend to think are slightly barmy, um, who've seen it, you know, I've seen it 248 times, and you think, you know, that's, that's awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably, other, other than previews of the original shows, when you tended to see it every night for 20 nights, perhaps, I doubt if I, I probably see it once or twice a year at most, which is great. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of it, and um, so it's been going 50 years. I've probably seen it a hundred times plus previews, right. so maybe maybe two hundred in my life. That's so, so it's entering a new phase, isn't it? Now, there's another live show starting. Yes, well, there's always a there's always a tour on. Um, I mean, it really does keep going, and um, it, it seems to have survived the initial bad reviews. And it was an enormous hit in America on record. And what's interesting for me is when we go over to the states old codgers of about 10 years younger than me always say, that was the record I remember at college. And, and it was a record. And really, Superstar, in my humble view, is best as a record. The original album is never considered a serious rock album, but it was. It had a Joe Cocker's Grease Band. It had Ian Gillen. It had Mike Darbo. It had a really good rock lineup. And it is a great rock album. And once you stick it in a theatre, it tends to become a little bit less exciting. But when you do it like they did in um, New York last week, in a huge area, and you've got a blokes playing guitar, you know, up on a huge plinth, it works as a rock album. And it, I don't know if any of you saw the Regent's Park production um, in the last two years. It's been done live at Regent's Park. And that worked for me, better than almost anything I've seen here because it was out of doors and loud and rock. And we had a great lineup of rock musicians on the original album. And um, sad to say some of them are no longer with us. But Johnny Gustafsson of the Big Three, he was a phenomenal singer. Um, we had Peter Robinson, who was in a band called Quatermass. We had... Um, Quatermass. Quatermass, yeah, yeah. I remember them. Yeah, yeah right. I remember them. Um, I mean, it was just a great lineup of, of, <laughs> of, of, of rockers. And at the time, Murray Head, of course. And at the time, Andrew and I were very lucky to get these people because we weren't known. 
Well, we'll, we'll get to this in, in great detail we'll, in a moment. We'll but, come to this. Oh, yeah, but we normally start. Where'd you get that? We're going to go back. We yeah. always ask the same question of, of guests. Uh, What's the name guests. of your dog? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we tend to ask, what kind of music reproduction equipment did you have in your home when you were a child? Because there's a way to find out how old you are and how much money you had. <laughs> well, my parents had a pie black box, I think it was. It was an um, auto-change record player. And they had most of the Rodgers and Hammerstein albums. And uh, before that, I had a wind-up um, 78 thing that really? my, my great-aunt gave us. And that is the front porch of the farmhouse we lived in. And that's me at the back and my two brothers, who I'm glad to say we're all still around. And Prince, who's sad to say is not still around, but a lovely... Yeah, quite right, he's a lovely dog. Um, and... What for, was played on the Pie record player? Then? Well, what, what the first thing... Well, it was obviously my parents played My Fair Lady and West Side Story and all that. Actually, West Side Story was a little bit later. Um, we played... The first 45 I bought was um, Tommy Steele EP of Singing the Blues and Knee Deep in the Blues, Rebel Brilliant Rock record. and Elevator Rock. Yeah. Can you remember where you bought it? Yes, at Go the um, uh, Checkers... Um, record shop no Elliot's next door to the Checker Cinema in St Albans Hertfordshire the first 78 I bought which was before then was Tommy Steele singing the blues I was a big Tommy Steele fan and indeed I still am <laughs> I saw him last year playing Glenn Miller in um, Plymouth and uh, he, Tommy's great I love Tommy Steele and I'm probably the only person in the world who remembers the lyrics of an obscure song on one of his albums called Teenage Party. And I went backstage to see him, which was a thrill. I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I've met him a few times, but I remain a great fan. And um, somebody, a fan, brought in the single of Knee Deep in the Blues, which was a not-so-successful follow-up. And the flip side was Teenage Party. And Tommy was signing it, and I said, I remember Teenage Party. And I began singing it, and Tommy and I, for about a minute, sang a duet of Teenage Party, and he said... We're the only two people in the world who know the words. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Lionel Bart. So, oh, right, yeah. of course. And, and, and Tommy himself. Was oh. there a key moment when, when you, you just sort of discovered musical theatre then? Was there, was there a moment? No, I, I still haven't really discovered musical theatre. All right, theater. OK. <laughs> Andrew was the musical theatre fanatic, and thank God he was, because he got me into it. Actually, this is obviously a set-up question. I have to say, when my dad bought that album back, he went on a business trip to America, the first time he ever been to America, in 1956, and he came back with this album. And it was just phenomenal. I mean, I was into... By then, Elvis had just about made it, and I was into rock and roll and, and, and all that. But this album really knocked me out. And um, Can you I, remember why? What was it about? Just great, great... I think it was... I mean, obviously, wonderful songs, but I think the lyrics, you know, I, I love the lyrics. The best couplet, I think, in it is, every time I looked around, there he was, that hairy hound from Budapest, never leaving us alone, never have I ever known a ruder pest. And, 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 uh, Alan, Alan J. Lerner, his lyrics in that, and, and he's a great lyricist, he's written lots of other stuff, but the words in that whole, you know, and the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plane and all that, on the plane, actually. Um, I just love the words. Maybe I was... And also, in, in rock and roll, early, early pop records, I now realise, looking back, that it was the words I loved. I mean, I love the tunes as well, but something like Summertime Blues by Eddie Cochran or um, almost anything by Jerry Lieber... 
Was it the idea that it had a story? I, that those particular yeah, I cases... I mean, Eddie Cochran's Summertime Blues, which I would maintain is one of the greatest songs ever written, is, is one minute, 58 seconds. And in it, he has a go at... You know, um, he has a go at his parents. He has a go at school. Yeah. He has a go at his boss. He has congressman. a go at congressman. He he. It's a complete, you know, U.S. teenagers Take attack down. on everything. <laughs> In and, two I mean, and again, a great double. I mean, great couplet. I told my congressman. I mean, he's pissed off. You know, he's saying I'm fed up with everything. I can't get a car. I can't get the girl. I can't get. The, and he said, I told. Why tell your congressman when you're 17? But he said, I told my congressman, and he said, quote. I'd like to help you, son, but you're too young to vote. Now, That's that right. is a brilliant, brilliant... That's a brilliant Did he write that himself, Eddie Cochran? Well, was it, this is a matter that we'll never know the answer to this one, but it, it's credited to E and... Oh, I forgot, I have a mental block. It, it's, edit, it's, it's credited to two Cochrans, Hank, Eddie and Hank Cochran, and they were not related. And I don't know whether Eddie or Hank wrote it, but Eddie wrote a lot of stuff on his own, which had great lyrics, like Sitting in the Balcony or Come On Everybody or Three Steps to Heaven. Uh-huh. I mean, corny, but great. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever think... I, I, I often think back into the 50s and the early 60s and, and the way radio was the light programme, you know. You didn't have a special teenager no, station right. or anything <laughs> like that. That, that uh, there was a lot to be said for the kind of mixing of pop music with show tunes, comedy records and yep. all that stuff that... Did that influence you? I Just think it did. Yes, there was. We had Radio Luxembourg, of course, but um, other than that, you—that's that, that's still true about Radio Two. You know, whatever you think about Radio Two, and I basically think it's a terrific station. I mean, I, I was coming up today. Paul Jones was on. Paul Jones is a wonderful singer and great expert on the blues. And in America, most radio stations are very much one type of music. If you like country music, mm. you won't like it after you've listened to seven days non-stop of the same ten tracks going round. Same with rap or whatever. Stations have no variety. Radio 2, if you listen to Radio 2 for one whole day, I'm not saying you have to do this, but apart from all the chat, which is sometimes pretty good, you get wide variety of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get folk, you get blues, and you're educated or at least given the chance to learn about something else. And I think however limited the light programme was in the 50s, you would at least, if you were waiting for two hours to get that one play of Elvis, you would hear a lot of other stuff in the meantime. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think radio stations need to be much more varied, diverse, which yeah, is yeah. a great album. So did you buy this? I didn't. I couldn't afford it. I bought many of the singles of Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and I was worried on that album about the... Um, second chap who I think is uh, Jerry Allison mm-hmm. um, uh, who's I'm worried about his hair it looks like his, a bit of his <laughs> bit of his head's been cut off and that worried me in 1957 and I, yeah. I but I did meet the crickets I, yeah. I, I, I went to a commemoration for Buddy's um, the 50th anniversary of the tragic death um, at, and I went to um, the, the surf ballroom in uh, Clear Lake oh, Iowa oh really yeah and there was a wonderful um, 50 year commemoration organised by one of the nicest men in pop music Bobby V who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame he's not because his records are considered lightweight wrongly because he had a great voice but he was a, very important in rock and roll A he replaced Buddy Holly um, I mean he was just um, called in at the very very last moment and B Bob Dylan um, was in his band briefly and Bobby V for me had a great 
um, very, very major role in pop music, and he had a lot of hits. Mm. They were right, they were ballads, they were Carol King songs, but they were good. Yeah, and but, um, Bobby organised this wonderful tribute to Buddy Holly, and the crickets were there. Right. So you, you, that Bobby V prospered in that period just before the Beatles. Didn't just you, before really the Beatles, really? yeah. they all well, prospered you, and they all collapsed when right. the Beatles appeared. Well, what's Except your, what's your memory of that of that period? Do you think that's undervalued that period I think it because is of a what bit. happened? People always say 1961, 62 were the worst years in popular music. I'm not sure that's true. No. There were some interesting records. Um, sometimes you 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 think well, it was a bit. Vague. I mean, there wasn't a direction. And the Beatles' timing is everything. The Beatles, absolute geniuses, but they came along at just the right time. Had there been national service, there may not have been any Beatles. No, absolutely. So um, thank God that was cancelled, not just from my point of view, but but from the Beatles' point of view. This is But there were some great records. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, No, hang on, you're interrupting me. We're interrupting you. There'll be a lot of that. <laughs> we've got a, yeah, we've got some pictures here. One of them, Norrie Paramore. Now, you went out, I think you were at the Sorbonne, and then you came back and got a job at EMI. Yes. Uh, Norrie, there's Norrie with Bobby. Was signed up by... Uh, That's by Bobby V on the right chat. Yes. Cliff, yeah. Cliff yeah. Nobby. We planned it. Nobby, Norrie and Bobby. <laughs> Nobby and there's and a lovely Norrie. moment in your, in your terrific memoir, Oh, What a Circus, where you're talking about Norrie Paramore producing a Cliff Richard session. Which I think, I think John Paul Jones later of Led yep. Zeppelin arranged it. it. Was for Eurovision, you know. He didn't arrange it. it well, no, actually, you're, you're, you're right. Uh, Norrie did. Cliff was going to do Eurovision, yeah. and um, there were six songs that year, '68. It was decided by um, Cliff had a show, I think, on telly, and one, he, he sang one song every week, and then in the final week, he sang all six, and the punters voted. I guess in those days it must have been by post. I can't remember. Mm, yeah. But Norrie was in charge of recording all six songs for an EP. And it was before we knew who was going to win. But Norrie picked the first two. He was, you know, he could spot a winner. Congratulations was the, was the winner. But John Paul Jones arranged a couple of them. And uh, he, of course, went on to be in Led Zeppelin. And um, Tony Meehan, who was a Shadows drummer yeah. did the other two, and that was the first time I met. I think I met him since. But when when I heard that John Paul Jones was in this, you know, wild band Led Zeppelin, I thought, is that the bloke who arranged yeah. <laughs> the sound of the Candyman's trumpet by Cliff Richard? <laughs> <laughs> is that what it was called? It was called, yeah, the yeah. sound of the Candyman's trumpet. That's yes, a brilliant very terrible. good. It, it didn't win Eurovision in '68. <laughs> no, but you joined DMI as a kind of general management trainee. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it was. So a, they were looking for bright young. Men. Well, they were looking. It was yes. men, wasn't it? Yes, it was all blokes, and uh, I think I was on seventeen quid a week, which seemed a lot. Did you wearing a suit? It was. Well, you had a formal. suit and tie. You had to clock in if you were late. You had to, um, you know, say why you were late. And I remember once my dad pranked his car. Um, my father used to give me a lift up to work every day because at the time I was living with my parents, I couldn't afford anywhere else, and um, my dad. Um, pranked his car and his company to Havilland Aircraft Company gave him a chauffeur for three days while the car was being fixed. It was nothing grand. It was a you know Ford Fiesta or something, whatever they had in those days. And this Burke turned up late one day and I arrived at EMI about 15 minutes late. So you, you, you had a column for your excuse <laughs> and I wrote, chauffeur late. <laughs> 
was a goddamn really. And this was like the most junior guy in EMI. And so yeah. Joseph Lockwood. So was why are we paying this bloke? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I got a major bollocking for that. But um, yeah. I said, it's true, it's true. Yeah, but I also got a bit of notoriety. I thought, this guy's a bit of a wag. Right. <laughs> so what kind of jobs were they, were they giving you to do when you well, started? I, you go around all the departments, right around the, the album cover department, the promotion on the right. road with the couple. It was actually riveting. And um, I met one or two people, who, like Alan Warner, who's still a great friend of mine. Do you know Alan? I know. I mean, lovely man, and, and he lives in L.A. now. And, and we were all record nuts. We were all anoraks. We were all... Pathetic, really. <laughs> but it was the first... In, in, in the first five minutes I was there, um, I, I, I answered a, said, answer the phone if anybody rings in. And it was the, you know, fan's phone or something. And they said, could you tell me what Dean Martin's fifth single was? And, and I then went round the EMI trying to find out, you know, the, the answer to this, and nobody seemed to know. But us anoraks, we sort of stuck together. And eventually I got posted to the a department. And Norrie, I think thought I knew what I was talking about, which I probably didn't, and he he kept me in his department, and of course he had Cliff and the Shadows, which were heroes of mine, they were pre-Beatles, and I think to this day, underrated, because the Beatles um, were of course world-class, they changed culture, they were, you know, sensational, but people forget that Cliff and the Shads got going five years earlier, they were the same age as the Beatles, yeah, yeah. the Beatles had the advantage of building on the... Um, success of Cliff and the Shadows and they the Shadows wrote a lot of their own stuff you know I mean a, a lot of songs for Cliff Please Don't Tease number one Summer Holiday you're right they were pop songs but they were the, the Shadows were doing what the Beatles and Stones did worldwide successfully a little bit later and, and, and the Shadows I think created a sound and a structure for a band that has influenced far more people than, than people give them credit for. They're a very, very underrated act, even if, though they're, they are very highly rated as well. If somebody had asked you at that point, you know, when you just joined EMI, that w- how, how you saw your future in five years' time, like they do, uh, <laughs> what would you have said? Did you want to be a pop star or do you want I, to be a mogul? I think, I, I, I think it had dawned on me that I was not going to be a pop star. You had, you, you, you had a few tries. I made a few, few records and demos and things, but I think I would have said, maybe not in five years' time, this is 1966, I think I would have said that in 1996 or even in 2018 I might be head of EMI in Barcelona or something um, I, I definitely saw myself as I, mean, I was enjoying it I knew a lot about the record business as a fan I was riveted by all the, all the goings on I really enjoyed it and I thought well I'm not bad at this and I've got a fighting chance of being Sir Joseph Lockwood in 2018 um, or whatever Where did it all go wrong? Where did it all went yeah. wrong? <laughs> How did, you, how did you get to meet Andrew, then? Was, uh, well, I, I met Andrew before I joined EMI. I was writing, in my, as David implied, I was trying to be a pop star, um, and I made a, a demo of some songs. And I wrote the songs myself, because I thought if I do, you know, a Mick Jagger song or a Tom Jones song or a Cliff song, it won't be as good as the original, obviously. Can so you remember I'm, the song titles? That's my story... Another Girl, Another Town, and... Excellent. Who Needs Love? Very true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these three songs, I made a tape of them and took them to Tony Hall. Um, or I sent them to Tony Hall, who was then in charge of promotion at Decca. And I'm ashamed to say I pulled on the old school tie because he was at my old school. 
And Tony very generously gave me a session and we recorded the songs, which I'd written the tunes as well. And they, they were okay. They were sort of Donovan-ish. And therefore, you know, I mean, I, Donovan made some great records, but it was, it was, they were fairly simple structures. And I imagined them being done by Sonny and Cher or somebody, you know. Um, but they was, they, but actually, I imagined them being done by nobody because I was trying to sell the voice, my voice. And I sent it off to all the record companies and I heard nothing back until about two months later when a music publisher rang me up and said, uh, we've just been handed this tape of songs, three songs, and um, the, the voice is not very good, but um, <laughs> we, we, we like one of the songs. And, uh, and they said, who wrote the songs? And I said, oh, 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 I did. And that was what I was trying to sell. I said, you know, the, obviously the singer's not very good. I didn't say it was me. Um, and one of them got recorded by, they said, oh, we're going to get them out to the groups and we think one of the groups is going to record it. And this was Mills Music. And um, I was quite excited. I thought, well, who, who's, who will the group be? The Hollies, Herman's Hermits, Animals, Manfred Mann? They're all obviously struggling. But maybe the Beatles have dried up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a group called the Night Shift. And one of these days, one of these chats, somebody is going to say, oh, I was in the Night Shift. Because <laughs> I think I owe them a beer. Because yeah. they recorded That's My Story. And they... It was quite a good record. They were a blues band more. They were more like, well, they were more like Manfred Mann than, than Donovan. And the song didn't really quite suit it. But it came out on a, on a proper label. And that was very exciting. But it was a flop. And how did that lead to you meeting Andrew? Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, your original question. Um, well, I, I had an idea for a book, which was turned out to be the Guinness Book of Hit Singles. Right. Um, I... I'd, 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 my mum was a freelance writer and had written a few articles here and there and she'd been on Woman's Hour and done a few chats. I mean, she was, it was a bit of a sideline for her because in those days, women didn't often work. <sighs> and um, my mum was, you know, bringing up, frankly, full-time. She had three manic children to bring up. And, but in her spare time, she, she wrote a few articles. And um, she belonged to a society of women writers and journalists. And they were given a talk one day by a publisher called Desmond Elliott. And my mum very kindly mentioned to Desmond that she had this son who was <laughs> trying to write all over the shop, and I'd got this idea for a book. It was a history of the charts. And the charts had only been going for about 10 years, so it was, it was been a short book. <laughs> yes, um, pamphlet. But Desmond said, oh, well, I, you know, I'm happy to see your son if he wants to. And so I went in and took the idea of the chart book to Desmond, and he didn't, he said, no, no, that won't sell. He said, I can't sell books about Mick Jagger's breakfast, so I always, always hair. So I'm not going to sell books about his chart success. Completely and utterly wrong. Yeah. But um, because we did it later with the Guinness Book of Hit singles, people love lists. A list of anything will sell. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, um, but he said, what else do you do? And I, I just had this record come out that's my story by the night shift and I played it to him and he said I don't like that either <laughs> so but he said I do know a young man who writes um, who writes music and looking for a guy to write words and that was Andrew and I went around to see Andrew and he was much more into theatre he I mean he had all the records he he knew about the Beatles obviously and the Stones and he knew their music beautifully and he knew he particularly liked the Everly Brothers which was one of my all-time favourites and we had a lot in common with music we liked. But I didn't know... 
actually, it's not quite true. I knew all the scores of all the musicals because my parents, but I had never been to a musical other than My Fair Lady. Um, and I didn't, I was really a, such a vinyl junkie. I didn't really want to go to the shows particularly. I mean, if you'd said, here's a ticket with The Sound of Music, I would have gone, but I didn't, I'd heard The Sound of Music, I'd heard West Side Story, King and I, My Fair Lady, but I didn't think, I've got to go and see the show. I just thought, I just love the record. And Andrew um, was writing a show based on the life of Dr. Bernardo, which wasn't a great idea, but he'd written some lovely tunes. And it was very much a Nick of Oliver, um, which was the big hit musical at the time, and a wonderful musical, Oliver. I mean, great, great songs. And the tragedy of Lionel Bart. I mean, you know, there's a film about Lionel Bart to be made, I think. Um, and, of course, I knew Lionel Bart initially through Tommy Steele. Yeah. And, um, so you were coming out as a different way along yeah, the same people. Yeah, I got through Lionel Bart, to Lionel Bart initially, and Oliver, I thought, that's all right, Oliver, not bad. But not, not, it's not quite as good as Handful of Songs, which was a top ten hit for Tommy. But he, he'd already written a load... Oh, you, he wrote Living Doll? No, no, no Andrew had oh, already... Oh, Andrew, Andrew, had Andrew didn't write Living Doll, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't no, Andrew, Andrew say he'd written, already oh, written... No, he'd written about six musicals. Six musicals. At school. And how I, old was he? He was just 17 when I met him. <laughs> And, and, he'd built, and he'd built a cardboard replica theatre, yeah, hadn't he? And, I mean, uh, which he acted out his musicals yes. and had pro- programs. I mean, this was all programs. before I met him, yeah. obviously. But he, he was absolutely... I mean, I thought, this guy's going to make it. Um, it would, you know... I, I, I very much felt that I was sort of hanging on his coattails and he was going to make it in an area that I hadn't quite considered. But because I'd always loved the lyrics of all these shows, I thought I could do it. And I, he revealed in his book, which I warmly recommend, <laughs> um, <clears throat> that he thought he was kind of hanging on my coattails because he thought I was going to be a pop star and all that. So we were both, you know, totally selfish. It's interesting, you saw something yeah. in each other yeah. that yeah. would benefit yeah. each of you. Yes, yeah. and, and, it, and, and we were right, in a way. The combination, I mean, I was much coming from the rock, rock and roll era, Area, sorry, and Andrew was coming much more from theatre. And the, I think the the musical he was working on at the time when I met him was not right. The tunes were great, but it was old old school. It was copying um, Oliver. But when the, I had the great plus that I didn't know the first thing about theatre, so when I got working with Andrew, I was kind of working from a position of not being influenced by theatre people, and. The Likes of Us, which was the Bernardo musical, you know, I, I did that, but it wasn't going to work. It was too, too unoriginal. But we then did Joseph for schools. And, and that was... We were beginning to get our own style. Because and you talk about in your fantastic <coughs> book, which is only the which first Which is now time, unavailable. Which is unavailable, <laughs> really, although really it, yeah, it, it's a fantastic Absolutely read. Absolutely gripping. Um, the, you, you talk about you got an opportunity to do this with a school, yeah, and which you took just to get it published. Basically, yes. We 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 we'd been told by Desmond Elliott, this publisher I mentioned, had become had become our agent. He was already looking after Andrew in a way, but he was a brilliant book publisher. Desmond, he discovered Jilly Cooper, Leslie Thomas, and one or two other people. I mean, he was a great book publisher. But he, to be brutally honest. He didn't know too much about theatre. But he did recognise that Andrew was good. And I think he recognised that I had a bit of a clue. And he was looking after likes of us. 
What was your question? <laughs> that that, that you, you did this with oh, the yes, school right, just right. to get it published. And, and he, he said, he, I mean, we, we basically signed a deal with Desmond, who got a deal with a music publishing company, Southern Music, to do the show of the likes of us. And we got 100 quid each up front, which was for a fortune. It was like 1,000 quid today, maybe even more. Um, and we, we, we basically had dreams of going. He said, oh, this will be in the West End. It'll be on Broadway. And it, was, it wasn't bad. And we made a demo of it. Southern Music paid for demos. And it didn't get go-away reactions. It got, mm, not bad. And I think it taught us that we were, we, we were vaguely on the right road. But no one wanted to do it. And, but while we were waiting to go to Broadway, which we'd been told by Desmond it would happen, or waiting for the West End, Alan Doggett, who was... a music teacher at Collicourt School in Hammersmith. He said, well, while you're waiting for your obvious trip to the West End, um, would you mind writing something for the kids? Because um, he'd heard our demos of the likes of us and he thought they were rather good. And this was a bit of a come down because we'd had visions of flying first class <laughs> to New York. We'd never been to New York and all that. And suddenly we were writing for a few bored parents on, on, on a Friday afternoon school concert. But of course, that was Joseph. And because we weren't thinking about the West End, we didn't copy anybody. And Derek Jewell reviewed it, didn't he? The Derek, Derek Jewell was very important. That was a stroke of luck because we did it at the school concert with, frankly, about 30 rather bored mums. <laughs> but it went down so well that, that the headmaster said, we've got to do it again and make the dads come because those were the days. Make when, the dads. Yeah, make them come. Those were the days when dads were. They, they, they weren't now. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, so we, we, we did it again on a Friday evening about two weeks later when we got the whole school in instead of just Alan's choir so we had a bit of an audience. And we did it um, at the Westminster Central Hall and we extended the piece by about ten minutes and it went down terrifically well. And Alan Doggett had said, I'll get a music publisher along to see if we can you know, get it published for educational purposes. And... They didn't turn up. But what happened was, was that the next Sunday, we got a rave review in the Sunday Times by Derek Jewell, who was a top music critic of the day. And we had no idea he was there. And he, he just said, this is a brilliant piece, and look out for these two guys. And his son was at the school, and we didn't know that. And he was so polite. It was a rave review. And then, of course, the publishers rang up. And the record companies rang up, and and we made that that album, which didn't didn't wasn't a mega seller, but it was it, it it was released, and a lot of schools bought it, and it was a very slow, gradual process. And above all, it took us to the attention of David Land, who became our manager. Right, because th this is your oh, God. Your, your kind of <laughs> key innovation in, in this whole area was that these things started off as records, didn't they? Yep. And then, which again was something we was slightly forced upon us. I mean, Joseph was done in a couple of schools, but not as not as a stage show and superstar. Um, Joseph was done a third time in St Paul's Cathedral, part of a religious festival um, organised by the dean, who, among other things, parachuted off the dome. Those um, are the days. Yeah, the late dean. <laughs> 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 but, but he survived that one, um, and. I'd always had this idea at school of... I went to a couple of schools who were very hot on divinity. 
which I found interesting. Um, and I always thought Judas Iscariot, Pontius Pilate, these are interesting people who aren't really given any motive in the Bible for what they did. And they were either incredibly unlucky or incredibly lucky to have been around at the time in one sense. Um, and I always thought one day maybe it'd be interesting to get into that subject more. And when, after this, the modest success of Joseph in a very limited area, um, the Dean of St. Paul's, um, I, I, I can't remember, I must have mentioned the Judas idea, and he said, well, if you think it's a good idea, go for it. And we then began writing what became Jesus Christ Superstar. Um, and the other thing that happened at St. Paul's was that a, a, our manager, David Land, um, saw the show and said, right, lads. And I was still at EMI, and he, he paid us enough for me to leave EMI, which I was very reluctant to do because I was very fond of Norrie, and I thought maybe I'm giving up a major career here. Um, but, and Andrew, of course, was still a student. He was two or three years younger. And for him, there was no question, oh, you know, what are you hesitating for? And I said, well, I'm really old, I'm 21, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit worried about the future. Oh, pathetic, really. Um, but I kept dithering, and David Land's offer got bigger and bigger. And instead of getting 1,500 a year, we were offered 2,500 a year, which was a hell of a lot in those mm. days. I mean, that would be, you know, 25 grand a year, which I know it's not a fortune now, but it was enough to live on if you're a student or a struggling songwriter. And we, in the end, I signed and had to give in my notice to Norrie, which was awful, but did all that. And um, we then began writing Superstar, and David Land, when we'd written it, or most of it, he tried to get theatre, you know, people like the Cameron Macintoshes of the day, the Lou Grades, the Bernie Delfonts, and nobody wanted to know, oh, religion, forget it, rotten idea. But the only person who wanted to do it was a guy called Brown Brawley at MCA Records, who were a small offshoot of the American company. And um, he said, well, do a record, and then if the record works, we do a show. And if the show works, we'll do a film. And it all worked. And by making it a record, we transformed it from what might have been a very conventional show into something that was quite original. Because right. if we'd done it, if, if Cameron Macintosh of the day, I mean, Cameron wasn't around then, but if Bernie Delfont, say, had said, okay, you can do it three weeks in Plymouth, it would have, we could never have had a rock band. We could never have had the resources. Um, it would have probably run... Also, we, we, we had the idea of a book, of dialogue it would have been a disaster it would have run for that would have been it but because we were doing it on record we cut out the book we were able to have a proper rock band we were able to do it as a really exciting rock piece of music so you did it in the classic rock fashion of the day you did it at olympic studios yep. in barnes where the rolling stones yep. led zeppelin and all sorts of people made records you did it with as you said earlier the, the grease band and so forth yes it, who who were offered uh, a percentage? Well, some of them were. They, nobody wanted a percentage. We, Yvonne Elliman was offered a percentage, and the Grease Band said, no, we, we, we don't want a royalty. I mean, it was from the word go, we'll do it, but we, we, we want £7.50 every session, or whatever it was. <laughs> Fine. Because we can drink that. But <laughs> or smoke it. <laughs> we, we, we were really keen to get people to take a royalty because... The MCA deal was they didn't pay us anything except the cost of the album. 
And we were panicking because we knew the album would be fairly expensive. And if we didn't sell enough copies, we would never be able to get any advance ourselves, we would get any money ourselves. But nobody except Murray and Ian Gillen, nobody wanted a royalty. In retrospect, thank God, or yeah. thank, thank Jesus. <laughs> but um, uh, Yvonne Elliman, her manager, who was a forceful American lady, um, said, no, my girl wants 100 pounds, which is quite a lot, um, and she'll record the song for 100 quid. So we, that went on to our budget. And, of course, Yvonne not only had the part of the 7 million selling album, she had a big hit single as well. Right. So, but... Um, was it, that because they didn't think it was commercial? Yeah, a, a brilliant I mean, it was a bonkers idea. I mean, yeah. nobody thought... I didn't think it was commercial. There's a lovely bit in the book where Noel Redding from the Jimi Hendrix yes. experience comes into the studio, studio. to Olympic and he sees his old mates, the Grease Band, and they're recording the single Jesus Christ Superstar and he just simply cannot make sense of it. You know? No, he thought he was on a trip, I think. That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I remember that. He came in and he was, you know, just jaw-dropping. And I thought, this is Noel Redding, Jimi Hendrix experience. He must have seen everything um, in his time, but... I mean, nobody, including, I don't know about Andrew, maybe, but I didn't think it was going to be a success. I thought it was going to be quite good and interesting, and I thought it'll be a good calling card. Maybe somebody will commission us to write a musical on Lord Nelson or something. I don't know. Why was it a success, then? Why, why did it Well, well I think it's it, you know, a huge success. I can say everyone. this 48 years later. It was bloody good. Yeah. It, was, it had a great rock band on it. It had two or three, well, actually, I think it had more than that, but it had two or three really great songs um, and it was interesting, in America, they were able, in those days, American radio was more flexible than British radio. The reverse is true now. And um, several stations, MCA in America, did a great promotion job. We didn't really know about it because there was no, you know, internet, there was nothing, phone calls were difficult. They just said, we're going to put this one out, guys, and we want you to come over and promote it. And that was all we'd heard. And it came out in England about a month before and got quite nice reviews, but slightly people going, oh, what's this about? Alan Freeman, the late Alan Freeman, played the single. But it didn't really take off. And we went over to America, which was very exciting because we hadn't been there before. Um, and we thought, well, at least we got a free trip to the States out of this. <laughs> and, but when we got there, they were really buzzing. This is going to be a great record. We've got WABC playing the whole thing or whatever. And... They did, and it took off like a bullet in America as a rock album. Knocked George Harrison off number one. I mean, yeah. wow. Yep. You know, that was fantastic. Outsold Led Zeppelin. I'm rather guilty because I rather like George Harrison. Yeah, yeah. Which resulted in, in an instant transformation of your fortunes. You know, these two guys had been kind yep. of worried about what was where the next pound was coming Absolutely. from. Absolutely. Suddenly found yourselves, you know, rubbing shoulders with, uh, in, with stars. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't, in my view, meet enough stars. <laughs> but well, you met but Paul we Newman. We met Paul, we met Paul Newman. That was actually you're right, uh, Paul Newman. That well, was fantastic. Who had a cassette of the show? It was amazing. Yeah. True story. We were on a plane going from. They 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 put us on a tour of bits of America, which I was so excited because I was you know this is L A. All these places I'd read about, and you know Herman's Hermits have been to L A. You know, <laughs> all and, the Chicago, <laughs> L.A., um, New York, Toronto. That was the first tour. And we promoted it everywhere. And we were flying from L.A. to, I think, New York. And who was on the flight but Paul Newman? You know, who was that time was 
probably the, at his peak and biggest film star you could think of. And he came up to us. We were sitting in the you know, front row, I think, I can't remember. And he said, you guys wrote this? And he fished out this cassette of Superstar. Yes. And Andrew said, uh, Andrew said afterwards, who was that? I was going to say, I, Andrew. I think he and was making you that are? Up. Yes, and I'm sorry, I'm talking to somebody. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and he was so... So friendly, he said, "This is a great album. We love it, you know." And uh, Joanne thinks it's terrific. And uh, anyway, he invited us to dinner, and then he invited us at the dinner. We had dinner in New York with Paul Newman, which was fantastic. And then he invited us to the weekend at his house. And Andrew didn't go. I went, and you know, I was too shy to ask for photographs. <laughs> I wish I'd done it now. Nowadays, he'd say, oh, "There's a couple of selfies, please, Paul." Um, but he, he had the pool table that he was in Hustler, and. Oh. Um, he lived about... He was in Connecticut. Anyway, and Joanne Woodward bought me a cup of tea in the morning. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> oh, God. How, how, quickly, how quickly did you become blasé? Do you, you know think what? I'm blasé, darling? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, you... I'm not sure. It's a good, very good question. I've never been asked that before. You should go into writing. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean... I, I, I'm not sure if I am blasé. I suppose I am in a way because, I mean, that the, there was the Olivier's last night and I didn't go because I just thought I don't need to go to that. I mean, that, maybe that's being blasé. But I'm an old codger. The punters don't want to see, you know, they, 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 they'd rather see what's happening. Yeah. I don't know if I ever... I suppose... No, I just meant round about this time, you know. No, at that you point, no. It was, ah, a... we met Linda Ronstadt. Right. Fantastic. Um... I mean, Salvador Dali turned up at the show in, oh, in Paris. It's hysterical. It's just brilliant. Salvador Dali and Frankie, and Frankie Howard. Frankie Howard on the same night. Having a conversation. That's fantastic. <laughs> Craig, Craig Did Brown. you hear their conversation? Not really. Well, I don't think either of them understood the other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Frankie but, going, it's but, these jockey shorts. Yeah. I think the jockey's still in them. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was the French, French premiere of Superstar, the show. And um, Robert Stigwood organised it in, inevitably. And we had a pretty interesting lineup of people there, and I, I just remember Salvador Dali turning up and Frankie Howard, and you know, <laughs> they were they were you, you, there was there is somewhere a photograph of the two of them, and I, I'm not sure they, they they actually had a meeting of the minds, but, right? Um, they, yeah, but they right. were there. But you, you, if you look back on that time, you must assume you met everybody. Really. Well, not really. A lot of people I didn't meet. I would love to have met Frank Sinatra. Um, I I became very friendly with Sammy Khan, a great old-time lyricist who wrote a lot of Frankie, Frankie, Frank Sinatra's hits. Um, and Three Coins in a Fountain, The Tender Trap, yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and Sammy Khan was a great lyricist. And I became very friendly with Sammy, and Sammy died, oh, I've forgotten, I was thinking 1996 or something. He was a good age, he was 90 or something. And he was, when Evita got absolutely terrible reviews in in New York he said don't worry it's a good show and he was very encouraging and he was and um he was he was a lovely guy and um Tita his wife who's still with us in fact she's 80 on Thursday I've got to remember to send her a bunch of flowers Tita um asked me to speak at Sammy's funeral or his memorial it wasn't the funeral and I thought this is quite an honor and I was in LA a lot anyway because I was working with Disney at the time and I wrote this thing. I thought, you know, my, my, the theme of it really was, without Sammy Khan, would Frank Sinatra have been so successful? That was the basic theme of my talk. 
And then when I got to the podium, in the front row, there was Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I might change this slightly, yeah. <laughs> knowing, knowing some of Frank's connections. <laughs> so I, I, it became... The wonderful partnership of Sammy Khan and Frank Sinatra has rarely yeah. been equaled in show business. Um, and I thought... And afterwards, it was, it was at Tita's house, this memorial, actually. She had a, you know... In, she had a wonderful tent, you know, and it was it was a it was a great great occasion. There was a lot of Gregory Peck was there. I can't remember who else, but a lot of interesting people. And I thought I'm really I got a chance to meet Sinatra, who'd sort of retired by then. He was getting on, and I thought he's over there in that part of the room. And I was chatting to Mackenzie Phillips or the Mamas and Papas or whatever. And I thought I've got to get over to Frank, and and he bloody disappeared before I got to him so I never met him but I did I was this close to him you know talking about him so he must have thought who is this schmuck (laughs) (laughs) but you wrote lyrics for Elvis Presley Elvis yes well we wrote the lyrics for Elvis his publisher um, and Elvis recorded the songs did you meet him we we, we wrote I did meet Elvis very briefly Um, and Elvis was obviously even to me more important than Frank Sinatra and um, we uh I, I got to know Freddie Beanstalk, his publisher, quite well. I have to say that Freddie gave Elvis a lot of pretty average songs. <laughs> but he said, if you want to write a song for Elvis, you know, send me a couple of demos. And Andrew and I wrote two songs for Elvis, and he recorded one of them. The, one of them was the last it's song, the last, the last record he ever made. On his last album. Yeah. And he, I mean, we got in um, whatever year it was, 77, when Elvis died, in, in June or July, we got the message, Elvis has recorded your song. Wow. August, he's dead. And which helped the sales of the album. But, yes. but, but, yeah. but I can truthfully say I'd rather Bless he him. hadn't died. Yeah. You know. And um, the song, it was a nice song. It wasn't a great song, but it's not a bad song. It's yeah. a country and western type thing. And uh, I've heard it sung. One, it had one or two covers um, and it, it, it's not a bad song. This, this, whipping forward to one of, your, one of your most celebrated songs, Don't Cry For Me, You're Argentina. Right. yes. Um, which starts as... That's just a kind of placeholder lyric, isn't it? Is that fair to say, when you first did it? Well, in a way, yes. We, it, the, the, we, we wrote the whole piece. We weren't particularly I, honest, Gov. We weren't really thinking of singles. We ho- obviously hoped there might be a single because in those days singles were very important. Yeah. And early on in the show, the ghost of Ava sings Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, where it makes perfect sense because she's died. And we had this big song where she's singing to the crowd in front of the Casa Rosada halfway through the show, and she's very much alive. And the song was meant to be a string of political cliches, really. It doesn't really, if you analyse it, it's, she's not actually being very honest. She's like most, most politicians. She's saying things that sound quite nice but don't actually mean anything. And we couldn't get a title, and I kept trying to find a decent title for it. And Andrew, I think, said, well, look, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina sounds like a great title, and it works in the first scene. Stick it in there. And I said, well, it doesn't quite make sense, because why would they cry for her? She's up there. Anyway, we put it in, and, of course, it worked, because it's, it's a nice-sounding phrase, and it, it adds to the meaningless of the rest of the lyric. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but... It, it just kind of works. But it must be one of the most, um, you know, 
often twisted in newspaper yeah. headlines. And I know. If ever every there's time an, there's a football match. If ever there's yeah. an Argent, Argentina in the World Cup, I think, you know, we're going to get a headline. You're in there. Yeah. 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 I'm fascinated by the story you tell in your book of uh, Julian Covington's, who, who first yeah, recorded on the it left. and had a number one for one week in the UK. Yeah, we were a little unlucky. Um, it got to number one, and that's all that matters, I suppose, in those days anyway. But she um, didn't want to go any further? No, she, no, she wouldn't. We were stuck behind David Soul for five weeks. Those two records were selling way ahead of everything else. And um, I knew the chap, Tony McCauley, who's a friend of mine, who wrote Don't Give Up On Us, and I thought, bloody Tony McCauley, you know. Yeah. And we were number two for four or five weeks. And I thought, and then both sales peaked. They were both mega sellers. I think they were the number one and two for the year. And, um, but our sales didn't fall off quite as quickly as, as David Soul's. And, and we were number one for one week. That was, that was enough. Um, but she but, didn't want to go she, any further no, with it. No, Julie didn't. Or... Julie was a, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, was strange about it. And, and, and she felt that she, she didn't want to promote it. Um, and, but when it got to number one, she agreed to go on top of the pops, not to sing it, but just to say hello. Um, and it was strange, really, but it's a difficult song to sing live, and we couldn't get... We, we didn't have a video of it. Um, video would have been very expensive in those days, and not every song had a videos then. And it would have been impossible, I think, to get the sound um, in, in, a, in a studio live with that massive orchestra. So I don't blame her in a way. Right, right. But she was fine, and, and it did get to number one, and it was um, quite a big seller. But when, um, you were, when you were casting the show, she wasn't interested? Well, no, that was strange. We thought, you know, she's the obvious lady to do it, but she didn't want to do it. And do you think she regrets it? I don't, I don't know. She agreed to do it in Australia about two years later and then pulled out of that at the last minute. Um, I think Julie is a wonderful actress and a great singer, but I don't think she's a theatre singer in the sense of blasting it out so she hits the back row of the stalls. Mm. Um, you've got to be a bit of a belter. You've got to have the subtlety as well. But I think maybe she was right. She was a wonderful actress and she was a good singer in Rock Follies. But I'm not sure she... I mean, I don't know why right. she turned it down, really. But I'm, I'm not sure she would have been as good as Elaine in that role for that doing a year of hitting the back row of the stalls right, with, your, with right, a powerful right, voice. Right. I don't know. But, um, you know, we're very grateful to her because she sang yeah. it beautifully. The, the, the lyrics, the, the, there's a bit, again, in the book where you talk, which is absolutely fascinating. You talk about various things that you learned. One was that, that if you write a ballad, um, the, the um, vocabulary that you use has got to be narrower. It's restricted, it, yeah. Yeah, and there's another where you, you yeah, you talk about, um, yeah, well, and... Well, why, why, in fact? Well, I think if you have a funny song or a story song, you, you can use almost any word in mm. it. Yeah. You know, forklift truck or greenhouse or whatever. But if you write a love song or a serious song and a ballad, A, you've got usually less syllables to play less, with. Less syllables. Fewer notes. So everyone's got to count. Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know... With a with a patter song or a funny song, it's often the tune, the rhythm of the tune will often be da 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 So you've got you can get long a lot of. But if it's a ballad, you know, Moon River, blah blah blah, you haven't got many many syllables to play with. So 
funny songs for me or, um, you know, story songs are easier to write. Oh, What a Circus, which is the same tune as Don't Cry Me, Argentina, because of, of the rhythm was much easier for me to write than, it, than Don't Cry Me, Argentina yeah. itself. But, um, yeah, um, sometimes a ballad comes quickly, but um, by and large I'm happier writing funny sort of songs. Is that why you've yeah. enjoyed Lion King and, and so forth? Yeah, I think Lion King was, was, that was good fun. I mean, but there again, there were a couple of heavy songs in that. I mean, Circle of Life is a bit depressing if you really think about it. Right. <laughs> And they, but, but how do you like that way of working? I mean, how much collaboration is involved with something like The Lion King? Well, The Lion King was great in the sense that, I mean, as it happened in my life, it was a good time for me because, or it was a good change for me because I'd kind of had a couple of theatrical things that didn't quite work and I was now working in movies and that was an area I hadn't done before and so that was, in a way, very... I suppose the word is refreshing. It was, you know, doing doing what I thought I could do reasonably well, but doing it in a new environment. So that was that was good. But um, I was able to be quite funny in one or two songs. And but I had the restriction of Disney, the directors and producers and everybody telling me what they wanted, which is fine up to a point. Um, but I also had the freedom of writing the words before the music because Elton only ever writes tunes when he's got the words. So that was a bit of a... Um, I mean, I, I was quite happy with that. So when, when you supply Elton with the words, he just goes away and does He goes the away and then and two, you, two you, days later... You hear it. Yeah, back comes... I mean, nowadays, um, I've just done a new version of one of the songs of The Lion King for the new film. They're doing a new film of it. Um, and... Um, but it's, it, the tune is already... That's interesting because I was writing words to a tune that already existed, written by Elton John. Um, but we've got to do one new song for the Lion King film. The, this is the, the live action. The live action. Well, it's not really live action because it's computer generated. I think I'm not quite sure. Oh right. But we're doing one new song, and um, I've got to submit a lyric because it's, it's it's quite. I is quite it, like writing the words first. Is it a bit of a bore, Tim? I've got no, to write one new you. song. <laughs> I've got. To, I'm for this real to be writing one new song. Massive success yes, that's yeah. coming round again. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the film would do quite well, but I, I, I did some songs for the new film of Beauty and the Beast, and they were, they were okay, but, but it, we didn't even get an Oscar nomination this time. You know, um, so I thought, well, my, snub. my career's yeah. over. <laughs> so rude. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, but deservedly so, I think, inevitably, the, 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 the new songs for Beauty and the Beast, which were quite nice songs, but they were old-fashioned, and I think we've moved on since then. But the film did very well. Right, right. Mm. I mean, this is the thing that strikes me as amazing about this world, is it's all about the, the, the number of productions and the longevity of the thing, isn't yeah. it? It's just, it keeps going. Do well, you they, find you have to, as in the Jesus Christ Superstar thing that we started with, you have to kind of tickle this process along occasionally? No, to... I, no I think things have their own life. I mean, I think a show that works... Um, people will always do it. I mean, hasn't Joseph had something like twenty thousand? I'm not sure. It's had a theatrical. Lot. Yeah, if you count the kids, school, schools, right. yes. yeah, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I just don't know. But yeah. if if something catches on and it works for people, especially with a show, I'm not so sure about rock music. Although, obviously, plenty of rock songs will live on forever. Um, but I think if you have a show that 
works and it will involve, every time it's put on, it will involve a lot of people, performers and behind the scenes, then I think it's got a good future. It'll, 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 it'll keep going. Um, so, I, I mean, I think Superstar and Joseph will see me out. Um, so I'm, my grandchildren are the ones who are going to have to worry if it dries up. <laughs> this, this book that we've, um, we've, we've mentioned a few it's times... so good. Uh, ...which came out how long ago? I mean, well, 1999. I, I, I really should try and do another one for 20 years on. Because at the end of the book, you promised that this is yes. part... First half. Oh, yes, I know. And and so now, have you I done I can't anything? remember anything I did after 1999. Yeah. So you haven't done a thing on the... You haven't started on the next one? Well, I've one. sort of thought about it. I've drafted it out. Um, not, I have, no, that's, not, that's an exaggeration. I've thought about it. I've written one or two notes occasionally, and I've kept one or two diaries. So I ought to do it, really, because I don't want to write another show. Right, yeah. right. So, um, well, that's something to really, really look forward to. I shall certainly mm. be looking forward to it. I'm going to ask you... I'm going to finish now with two quick questions. Right. What is the greatest record ever made? Oh, good. <laughs> Album or single? Um, single, of course. Well, I always used to say my stock answer was Runaway by Del Shannon. OK, that's oh, good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's pretty but good. there are plenty of others. I mean, Summertime Blues, Eddie Cochran. <laughs> and, and almost anything by the Everly Brothers. There are a lot, but I'll, I'll stick to Runaway by Del Shannon, which you're, you're all too young to know, I can tell. <laughs> And what's the best piece of advice anybody's given you about the music business? Oh, gosh. Have I ever had any good advice about the music business? I don't know. Um, do you know, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. It's awful. I'm, what piece of advice would totally you give bad somebody... to my talk. Where, where... <laughs> Start that question again. Yes. What piece of advice would you give to somebody who entering the music business? Well, I think you've got to have a certain ability. And I think... You've just got to keep going. I mean, it's determination. You see so many people who are very talented who cock it up. You've got to be organised and keep at it, um, which is, is a really boring piece of advice, really. But I would say in t practical terms, writing a show, a live performance of your show is much better than any recording or tape or CD or streaming or downloading if you can actually relate to an audience, even if it's 20, 20 bored parents on a, on a you know, that, I, think, I, I think that's, that's important. And if you're writing a musical, I think to attract the attention of, of, of producers to begin with, if you can be funny rather than really heavy first time out, I think a great show like Les Mis, if, if that had landed as a, just as a tape on someone's desk, they would have thought, a bit heavy. But Joseph, we, we got picked up on Joseph because David Land thought it was, you know, catchy and funny. But the um, best advice I've ever had, I don't know. I'm going to ask retire. you one more, actually, because I meant to ask you this uh, earlier and it just reminded me with you talking about Joseph. Uh, you must have had many times in your career where you've had to unveil a, a, a new composition to important people, you know, managers, yeah. backers, producers... What have you learnt about that? Because presumably if it doesn't go right the first time, you, you can't retrieve the situation. No, you've got to look as if you're enjoying it yourself, <laughs> um, which is often difficult. <laughs> um, I remember um, in The Lion King, I, I could tell that they weren't, the Disney people weren't convinced that the tunes Elton and I had written, Elton wasn't there, and um, we'd written two or three songs, 
And I don't think they were convinced that they were going to work because they could only hear it as Elton John songs. And I, I remember reluctantly performing um, Be Prepared, the song for Scar, which is almost my favourite, even though it's the least known. Um, and I really gave it a lot of welly. I didn't sing brilliantly in tune, but I just demonstrated to the, to the execs that it wasn't an Elton John song in the sense that it sounded like Elton. It was a great tune which Elton had written, but it could be done in a theatrical way. And I think going for over, almost over-the-top selling was, 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 was what won that one. But the thing about theatre, you have to remember, is nobody knows anything. And you are as likely not to know anything as the next bloke. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> Tim Rice, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you Thanks by the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.